Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 7 as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 7. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You were as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm 7, verses 1 to 17 says, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let them trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you. And over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the heart and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Please be seated. Question, has anyone ever made something up about you and tried to ruin you with it? Did those words hurt so bad that you wanted to take revenge? If you've answered yes to either of those questions, it sounds like you may have been the victim of slander. 
And in Psalm chapter 7, King David implores God to defend him against those who are slandering him. So I just use a word, slander. What does that mean? Slander, slandering, slanderers. Slander is a false statement designed to ruin someone's reputation. Slander is a weaponized lie. Now, we're in the 21st century. We're Americans. We're fancy. So technically speaking, slander is something that you say. Libel is something that you write. But to keep things simple, we're going to say slander is any false language designed to hurt someone else. And here's the problem with slander. You know it's false. You know someone else made something up about you, but everyone else thinks it's true. If the slander was not false, it wouldn't be slander. If it was true, you don't need Psalm 7. You need to confess and repent. But when everyone else thinks it's true, it now becomes true in practice. And the sheer reality, beloved, is this. People tend to believe whatever they hear first. So if they hear slander first, they'll tend to believe it. That's not my opinion. That's not my take on things. That's God's words. Proverbs 18, 17. People tend to believe whatever they hear first. Now we're in the series, Preaching Through the Psalms. Of all the psalms we've talked about thus far, God can relate to Psalm number 7 the most. Why? Because God himself was the first victim of slander. In Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? He was insinuating, he was using language to suggest that God really wasn't someone worth Trusting God was the first victim of the first slander campaign. And just like temptation, when you live a godly life or try to do that which is godly, you are going to be slandered. The only time we are going to be free of slander is when we make it to heaven. Are you trying to live a godly life? Good. Yea and amen. Then prepare to be slandered. The Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote, quote, The applause of the wicked usually denotes some evil, and their censure imports some good. End quote. Now, why does having a strategy to deal with slander, why is knowing that, why does that actually matter? And that's simple, because lies actually matter. Because the Christian faith is a social faith where you deal with people. And if everyone around you thinks and believes in a lie, that's going to undermine how you can operate in whatever office God called you to operate in. Don't undervalue 
the perception and the favor that you have with other people when you're going to be working with those other people. We do not work or labor for the approval of men, but if everyone thinks you're something that you are not, that now is impeding God's calling on your life. The point is this, never brush slander off as nothing and never be so heavenly-minded that we are now disconnected from earthly reality. So the psalm begins. This psalm has a superscript, meaning it has an introduction. It tells us what this psalm is about. And the text says, A shagion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. What is a shagion? It's a type of melody or song. It's something that's meant to be sung. The last chapter of Habakkuk, where he was praising and lighting in God, that is a shagion. The same thing applies here. And because Psalm 7 is a shagion, we already know from the top that we're going to have a happy ending. Now, who was Cush the Benjamite? The best answer I can tell you is that his name was Cush, and he was a Benjamite. Beyond that, the Bible isn't exactly clear as to who this individual was. What we do know is the Bible mentions Cush the Benjamite once, here in Psalm 7. The Bible mentions King David a lot, and the Bible mentions God all the time. So we're going to focus our attention on time on King David and God Almighty. We do know that Cush, however, was the slanderer. He was the ringleader of all those weaponizing lies against King David. The psalm begins. Verse 1. David says, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. So you're slandered. Someone makes something up about you that is clearly and blatantly false. The first words out of David's mouth are, O Lord my God. Stop right there. When someone says something that's a lie about you, what's the first thing you want to do? What's the first thing that you desire to do when you hear the lie? You want to find out where they are. You want to find out what they said. And you want to give them a piece of your Holy Ghost-inspired mind. You want to get to the bottom of this and drop a truth bomb on whoever it is is making stuff up about you. But what is David telling us? The first words out of his mouth are, Oh Lord, my God. David turns to God first. Because you see, if you respond to the person, if you respond to the slander first, that's unchristian. If someone's throwing dirt in the mud at you and the first thing you do is get down in the mud with them, that's not Christian. And that expresses distrust in God. Because that means you're going to try and handle the slander battle all by yourself. The first thing to do is not to answer the slander. It's to trust God. How to appeal against slander, step number one. 
You don't engage the slander first. You speak to God first. You don't engage the slander first. You speak to God first. And when I say speak, I mean prayer. This is not to suggest that you will never ever respond to any slanderous accusations. It is to suggest that if you begin with men, if you begin with the slander, the slander wins. Because now you become reactive. Now you're not acting like a godly person. Now the slander says something, you respond. It says something else, you respond. Now you are a slave to the slanderers. Now when you are slandered, how does that make you feel? It makes you feel violated, naked, ashamed. It makes you feel like you're worth nothing. It makes you feel like you want to run and hide. And the first thing you want to do is you want the slander to stop because everyone's looking at you. It's like you're naked in front of the classroom and everyone's going, ha ha, pointing at you. But when you turn to God first, the slander doesn't fool God, does it? Because if the slander is in fact not true, you can't pull a fast one on God Almighty. So when the first thing you do is that you take the problem to God first and speak to him in prayer, the slander does stop because now you are entering into a slander-free zone. Because God never slanders you. He is a God of Truth. This is what Bible scholar P.C. Craigie once wrote, quote, Whereas a false accusation may deceive and convince our fellow human beings, it cannot deceive God, end quote. And when you pray through our mediator, Jesus Christ, he will lend you a sympathetic ear because Jesus spent his entire life being slandered. So when you pray to the one who's an expert in defending himself against slander, you now have someone who can empathize with you. David says in verse 1, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Whenever you see that term, in you I have taken refuge, that's a figure of speech that means trusting one's life to the care of God in the face of uncertain or threatening situations. I have a newsflash for you. Slander is a test. It's a test of your faith. The slander is a test to see how you are going to respond. And when you take refuge in God first, that means you turn to him and trust in him first. Don't fall into the trap of trying to deal with the slander yourself. That means you fail the test because you don't trust God. And here's a critically important thing to understand. When someone says something negative about you, that's going to inflame the fires of anger inside of you. It's going to inflame the fires of vengeance inside of you. But what David is telling us in turning to God first is that that slander ought not to compel us to have rage brew inside of us, but rather have our devotional fire taken up to the max. And we channel all of that energy and speak to God first.
And in seeking the Lord, we know he is the one who will uphold the righteous, vindicate the innocent, and punish the wicked. Beloved, at the end of the day, when David begins by saying, my Lord, my God, if you don't really trust God, Psalm number seven doesn't continue. Because if you don't begin by saying, oh Lord, my God, nothing else that follows actually applies. And David says, oh Lord, my Elohim. This is a God that David knows. There's an intimacy, there's a fellowship, there's a rapport, and there's a relationship. So David knows he can trust his heavenly Father. This is personal. Having a saving faith and trust in God is critically important because if we don't truly trust God, now the gate of mercy is closed. Without the key of faith, that gate of mercy is now closed, and now we are speaking through a door and our words are muffled. But when the key of faith opens that door, now we have free, open access to the God who's showing us how to pray when slandered in Psalm number 7. Do you trust your Lord and Savior? Then flee to God who has the power to deliver. And when you're slandered, turn to God first. Verse number 2. In the first verse, David says, O Lord, my God, save me from those who are slandering me. Then he says, or he, or the ringleader of the slanderers, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. How to appeal against slander? Step number two. You have to realize how powerful slander is. You have to realize how powerful slander is. Do you know why the forces of darkness use slander? Because they realize how powerful slander is. Slander can destroy you. It can destroy your reputation. It can destroy your family. It can destroy your church. It can destroy your organization. It can destroy successive generations after you. Realize slander is so powerful, it played a role in the downfall of all humanity. As a result of the serpent slander campaign against God in the Garden of Eden, when he began asking Eve, did God really say? That played a role in Adam and Eve not trusting God, and now what happened? We went from a world of perfect paradise to a fallen, broken world. Slander helped to make the world broken. Realize how powerful slander is. And when the lions of ungodliness smell the scent of godliness, they go into a rage. There's a reason why David uses the figure of a lion. Because when a lion finds its prey, it doesn't make an appointment and wipe its prey out. It's violent. There's weeping. There's gnashing of teeth. There's tearing of flesh. That lion wants to make sure everyone who sees the encounter learns the lesson and realize just how powerful the lion actually is. Now, I'm not David. You are not David. No one here is going to learn how to wrestle lions in their free time. If you go up against the lion, the lion always wins, which is why 
you turn to God first. You versus the lion, you never stand a chance. But the lion versus God, the lion never stands a chance. Realize how powerful slander is. Verse 3 to 5. David says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. This is the core of the psalm. Cush the Benjamite accuses David of something. David says, Lord, if I have done this. The psalm never says what this is. The only thing we do know is that it was perceived as injustice. And that injustice is a big deal because David is a king. He's supposed to be the champion of justice in the land of Israel. So if a king is accused of injustice, that now threatens his ability to serve as a king. And David says, Lord, if in fact I have done this, I'm going to now invite a curse upon myself. God, if I really did do the thing I'm accused of, then let the slanderers win. David is calling a curse upon himself. It's called a self-malediction. Now, where would David get a crazy idea like that to call down a curse on himself if he did something wrong? And the answer is God himself. Genesis 15, verses 17 to 19. The only person, the only time a godly person who is sane, who is thinking clearly, would ever pray to God and say, Lord, if I have done this, if in fact my hands are dirty, then let my enemies win. The only time a person would say that is if they know in their heart of hearts that their conscience is clean. How to appeal against slander. Step number three, make sure your conscience is clean because the only person who can legitimately appeal to God when slandered is when they have a clean conscience. Having a clean conscience does not mean you are perfect. Having a clean conscience does not mean you are sinless. Having a clean conscience simply means whatever it is you were accused of, you didn't do. If you were accused of, of taking money and you're not a thief, your conscience is clean. If you were accused of killing someone but you're not a murderer, in regards to that accusation, your conscience is clean. And the reason why having a clean conscience is so important is the last thing anyone would ever want to do is to pray to God and enroll him in a bad cause. Now here's how God changes everything. Because in the court of men, in courts of law here on earth, we take someone else to court to prove them guilty. 
But in God's heavenly courtroom, we can bring ourselves into that courtroom with a clean conscience so he can declare us innocent. Because he's the one who searches hearts and minds and to vindicate those who have a clean conscience. In your Christian life in general, you never ever want to underestimate the power of a clean conscience. When you wake up each and every day and pursue that which is godly, seeing, acting, doing, devoting yourself to your maker, that clean conscience now liberates you. It sets you free. A clean conscience gives you. It not only acquits you on the inside when you are slandered, it gives you the ability to sleep at night. It gives you peace, it gives you inner stillness, it gives you confidence, and it gives you strength. Why do you think God gave you a conscience? Your conscience is God's autograph on your soul. So when you follow the manufacturer's blueprint for life, the machine works as it's supposed to. But as we now never underestimate the power of a clean conscience, we also never underestimate the power of a guilty conscience. Realize something. If slander doesn't have to take you out if your conscience is guilty, because your guilty conscience will destroy you yourself. A guilty conscience makes you not be able to sleep at night. Your health suffers. You're confused. You have bitterness. You have enmity. You have strife. You have conflict, self-doubt, and weakness. So step number three is make sure your conscience is clean. Now here's a critical point. Crucial point to understand. David slandered turns to God. The first appeal he makes to God is, Lord, save me. The second appeal he makes to God is, Lord, if I have done anything wrong, then allow my enemies to win. Notice David's response. After he turns to God, the next thing he does is he examines himself. He doesn't approach those who are slandering him from a posture of anger or vengeance or rage because David realizes something critically important. When we are slandered, there's an enemy without and an enemy within. The enemy without are the slanderers who are throwing words of violence at us. But now, if we allow ourselves to allow those flames of anger to grow and brim over, and we don't win the battle within, now we get angry. Now we want to enact vengeance. And an angry heart that burns with vengeance now has the door to prayer to God closed. The real enemy in this slander battle is the enemy Within, And you want to know a secret? Do you know how slanderers become slanderers? They've lost the battle within. Their fires go all the way up, and now that fire has to come out. That fire will come out either in physical violence or psychological violence of slander. So having a clean conscience means not only 
examining yourself to make sure you didn't do anything wrong, looking back, but also looking forward to make sure you don't respond with vengeance to those who are throwing dirty words at you. This is what the 17th century English preacher William Secker wrote, quote, to do evil for good is human corruption. To do good for good is civil retribution. To do good for evil is Christian perfection. That is the nature of grace, end quote. And to do good for evil is to respond with slander in godly ways and by maintaining a clean conscience. Verse 6. David says, Arise, O Lord. In your anger, lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Step number one was turn to God. Step number two was realize how powerful slander is. Step number three is clean conscience. Now, after we move through one, two, and three, now we appeal to God's justice. We appeal to God's justice. Appealing to God's justice means appealing to God's character as a just judge. Here's something you have to understand, church. There's heavenly justice and there's earthly justice. Heavenly justice is the end of revelation. Great white throne, awesome majesty, might power, angels. Jesus comes back to earth and everybody everywhere is judged. That is total cosmic final judgment. That's heavenly justice. But then there's earthly justice. That someone gets pulled over for doing something they didn't do. That someone being sent to jail for something they did not do. There's someone cooking the books and enriching their pockets and not getting caught for it. Earthly justice corrects all of that. God is a God of heavenly justice, but he is also a God of earthly justice right here and right now. And a means by which the children of God secure earthly justice is by them praying for it, is by them appealing to God to act as a just judge. If we have a worldview where the only thing we're focused on is final heavenly judgment, you know what happens? Now we become apathetic. Now we look at the world around us and say, oh, there's more injustice. We'll just wait till Revelation 22. No! God is a just judge who is intimately concerned with what goes on right here and, not, and right now. But because God doesn't want us to take vengeance and justice into our own hands, we appeal to God's justice to act like a just judge. Are you a Christian? Good. Yea and amen. Then that means by necessity, you are concerned with earthly 
justice. And how do we appeal to God's justice? We do exactly what David did. We entreat God to act through prayer. And when you entreat God to enact his justice through prayer, do you know what now happens? You now take the just wrath of a God who doesn't like injustice, who doesn't like slander, who doesn't like darkness, who doesn't like deceit, and you are putting the wrath of God right up against the slanderers. Now you tell me, if you through prayer take yourself out of the equation and now the slanderers are going up against God himself, what exactly do you have to worry about? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That means trusting in God and appealing in Him that He will address the slander. I know I have a lot of quotes, but these are good quotes. Matthew Henry, quote, People need not fear men's wrath against them who have God's wrath for them, end quote. So step number four is you appeal to God's justice. Look at David's words. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me. Okay, preacher. So my conscience is clean. I'm doing that which is godly. I've turned to God first. I'm making an appeal to God's justice. But what now happens when God's justice is simply taking too long? It's been a couple days. It's been a couple weeks. It's been a couple months. It's been a year plus. I'm following your steps, one, two, three, four, but things are taking way too long. And my answer would be, it may seem as if God is taking a long time sometimes because God is long-suffering. God is patient. And he is actually far more long-suffering and patient than any human being. So when it seems as if God isn't doing anything, his long-suffering is purposefully active, giving other people space and time to repent, giving other people time to turn around. Because, beloved, when we examine ourselves and we ask ourselves, if God wasn't patient and if God wasn't long-suffering, when would he have given up on me. Mm. We think about it like that. Thank God for his gracious long suffering. So you appeal to God's justice. David says, You, O oh Lord, have appointed judgment. That means God's appointed time, place, the when, where, and why. And the last thing I'll say is this. 
David is a king. Who called David to be a king? God did. He was God's servant doing God's calling in God's land, governing God's people. God is never, ever going to call you to do something and then leave you alone when you're doing it. So, of course, when the godly person is doing God's work, they call to God and appeal for his justice. If God calls you to do something, he always leaves the door open so you can call him when the something gets tough. I'm not a king, neither are you, but you're something. You're a singer, you're an evangelist, you're a mom, you're a counselor, you're a whatever. If God has called you to do that, he will not leave you alone. For shall not God avenge his own elect? That's step four. Step number five. How to appeal against slander. Step number five. Appeal knowing that some of your present adversaries may actually be future allies in disguise. That was a paragraph point. Let's say that again. Point number five. Appeal knowing that some of your present adversaries may actually be future allies in disguise. Verses 8 to 9, David says, The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. Here's what David is saying here. He's saying, Lord, I'm in a less than ideal scenario. Vindicate me. But David also, as a shepherd king, has a concern for the righteous. Because David knows there may be some people out there acting badly who are slandering him right now. But some of those folks may actually be gods. Some of those folks may be in that first part of their life when they're doing that which is contrary to God's will. But at some point in the future, they're going to be converted. They're going to go from fighting against God to actually fighting for God. David isn't concerned only about himself. He's concerned about God's purposes. And he therefore prays, prays, O Lord, establish the righteous, because the last thing he would ever think about doing is calling down a curse on one of God's set-apart chosen people. Church, we do know no one is born saved, right? No one is born holy. No one is born completely sanctified. You could spend five, six, seven decades doing crazy stuff, and then in the last year, you get saved. So David has this mindset in mind knowing someone may be doing something bad now, but that doesn't mean God has plans for them in the future. The perfect example of this is the man called Saul in the New Testament. How did Saul begin his life? As a Christian murderer. 
If he was alive today, he'd be called a religious fanatic and a terrorist. This man went into villages and killed Christians who weren't bothering anybody. Now, if someone prayed, if someone prayed for God to wipe Saul out, it would have been a prayer not answered. Why? Because one day, Saul met Jesus. And what happened after that is now the man who was violent against God now became violent against enemies of God. And he is now the one who penned most of the New Testament. Hence, David prays, Lord, establish not just me, but establish the righteous. And he prays, knowing that some of his present enemies may actually be future allies in disguise. Our works are judged by what we do, but only God searches our hearts and minds. Verse 10. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Point number six. How to appeal against slander, step number six. Appeal knowing that God's defense is better than any human offense. Appeal knowing that God's defense is better than any human offense. David says, Lord, you are my shield, meaning God is his defense. What's the offense? That's the slander. Those are the attacks other individuals are throwing at David. But what David is saying here and taking refuge in God is that the defense of the Most High is always better than whatever else anyone throws at you. Why is that? The text tells us God's defense is better because God is the one who vindicates. God is the one who saves because the godly can present themselves before God's mercy seat with boldness. Hebrews 10, 19 and 23. God is our best defense because God searches and tests hearts. Therefore, there is never a reason for those with a clean conscience to be afraid. Third, the Lord protects his own with a shield and maintains any righteous cause. God is our best defense because God himself says, vengeance is Mine. It doesn't say vengeance is thine. God says vengeance is mine. Deuteronomy 32, 35, and 36. God is our best defense because God has indignation every day against unrighteousness. Verse 11 says God has indignation. What does that word mean? Indignation means expressing wrath. Holy, just, godly wrath against unrighteousness. Beloved, when God sees injustice, unrighteousness, slander in the world, he doesn't have to convene a heavenly court and ask angels, how should I feel about this? The holiness of God finds one atom of sin radically offensive. It's cosmic treason. As a result, God's holiness expresses wrath every single day. And if God, if the God of the universe expresses wrath against slander or darkness, 
We therefore take refuge in him. Verse 11 to 16. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If, if, if a man does not repent, what will God do? He will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. How do the wicked respond? Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. You don't hear verses like this very often because this is the real God. And the real God is radically and totally offensive. And this is the point. If this is how the holiness of God will respond to slander, what are you worrying about and trying to figure this out all by yourself? Your best defense is God himself. Now there's someone asking a question. I can see it in a few people's eyes. Isn't this the Old Testament, Pastor? Isn't this before the cross? Isn't it true that these verses no longer apply to us? To which I will say, Beloved, God does not change. God never stopped being holy. God never stopped being just. Yes, this is the Old Testament. Yes, this is for before the cross. So yes, when David wrote this, pleading faith in Jesus Christ was not an option. But the only thing that's changed between back then and now is how a person deals with sin. Now they can profess faith in Jesus Christ and now the blood still works. It washes and cleanses and makes you now well. In David's time, the same God who existed then is the same God who existed now. Right now, God has indignation every day against unrighteousness, which means these verses apply more to us now. Because now a person has an escape route. Now a person has Jesus. Back then, they didn't. God is good. God is love. God is merciful. Of course he is. How do these verses prove otherwise? God also makes a radical distinction between those who are his and those who are not. And those who are his know who God is and therefore don't fight slander themselves but take refuge, defense in the God who has indignation every day against unrighteousness. David ends, verse 17. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. I would highlight, underline, put a star next to Lord Most High. This psalm began in prayer. It ends in praise. This psalm began with David being slandered. Now he's singing. Now he's singing the melody of a shagion. What happened? Did David get an acquittal? 
Did David, was he declared vindicated in a court on earth? Text doesn't say that. Did the slanderers get what was coming to them? The text does not say that. So what happened? What happened in the end, David's comfort, David's defense was predicated on who God is. Now maybe you've forgotten, maybe you've been going through the motions for a while, and you forgot who the God of the Bible is. If you've forgotten, allow me to reintroduce you. The God of the Bible, his name is the Lord Most High. In Hebrew, Yahweh Elyon, meaning he is the most supreme, most sovereign. He is the one in charge of everything. When the Psalms were written in that world, you had a little g-god of a tree, little g-god of a river, little g-god of a city, little, little g-god of a plant. All those are fake gods. But the Lord Most High, Yahweh Elyon, if there's a pyramid, a hierarchy of power in the universe, at the top of the pyramid, you go another 10,000 miles up, that's where Yahweh Elyon is. There is none greater than he, for he is the best there is. Yahweh is the one. Yahweh Elyon is the one who laid the foundations of the world. He's the one who directs the morning and tells the sun to stop. In the beginning, when the waters burst forth from the womb, he told the rushing tsunami, stop right there. And the waters obeyed. Because that is Yahweh El Yon. And this is what David rests in at the end of the psalm. He leaves it all to Yahweh El Yon, knowing who he is, and he trusts that Yahweh El Yon can never stop being in complete and total control because that's exactly who he is. So what does he do? He adopts the occupation of every saint, which is what we're going to be doing in heaven forever. He praises God. He rejoices God. And he sings a melody, a shaggy on, to his maker. Because when Yahweh El Yon is your defense, you don't need and offense. Your peace, your comfort, your hope is predicated on who Yahweh Elyon is. Final conclusion. What is Psalm 7 actually about? It's about a shepherd king, David, who appeals to God when falsely accused. The real subject of Psalm number 7, then, is the Messiah. It points directly to Jesus when he makes an appeal against the false accusation of his enemies, and, it's point, and it points forward to the final vindication of the just and the punishment of the unjust. And here is the final closing point. How to appeal against slander. Step number seven, you appeal with eyes on Christ. Because when we look back to the cross, Jesus embodied all of this perfectly. Steps one through seven. When Jesus was on the cross, do you know that our Lord and Savior, they didn't stop slandering him even when he was dying? 
He was dying on the cross, and they didn't stop slandering him. But what did Jesus do? Did he keep his eyes on people? No. He kept his eyes on God and said, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus took slander seriously because he knew the, the problem wasn't slander. Slander was the symptom. The root disease was sin. And he was there at the cross making an atonement for sin. Jesus had more than a clean conscience. He was sinless. He was perfect and the spotless lamb. Jesus was at the cross to satisfy God's justice. He was making more than an appeal. He was satisfying it because the just thing to do with any sin is to destroy it, is to express wrath against it. So what did Jesus do? He took my place. He took your place and had all of God's wrath poured out on him so that God can now justly treat you and I with grace. Jesus kept God's children in mind knowing he had a bunch of enemies before the cross, but after the resurrection, some of his fiercest enemies were now his allies. And God was Christ's best defense. Because guess what? Up to the point of death, Jesus never disobeyed God. And God the Father vindicated him by raising him three days later from the dead. Now Jesus didn't keep his eyes on himself at the cross. But he had glory in mind. Jesus at the cross would look forward down the corridor of time and realize why he was there to purchase and redeem his bride so that in the end, all of his elect will have pristine, white, perfect robes in heaven, magnifying and glorifying Jesus in eternity. Beloved, do you not know Yahweh Elyon has already written the end of everything. Everything from the beginning ends in glory. It ends in comfort. It ends in joy. It ends in delight. It ends with the elect sitting, eating, and drinking face to face with God Almighty. So knowing that Yahweh Elyon has been orchestrating that, everything in your life, no matter how bad, no matter how frustrating, no matter how arduous it may seem now, it all ends in glory because Yahweh Elyon is the one who wrote it. Now that we know that, now that we know that what Yahweh Elyon has orchestrated can never be changed, what now do we do? We sing. We praise, we compose our own shaggy on knowing God is who he says he is. Because we know that he's the one who goes ahead of us, that he will be with us. He will not fail or forsake us. Therefore, there is no reason to fear or to be dismayed. Because we know who Yahweh Elyon is, we can therefore accept his plan for life. He cannot fail. He cannot lose. He cannot be defeated because, beloved, the end is written and it ends in glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which objectively and in a timely manner always reminds us of not only what you have done, but who you are.
I pray, O oh Lord, that you open the hearts and minds of those gathered here today and for all of those hearing these words, that they will not only know with their minds who you are, but take ownership of your essence in their hearts. So they, O oh Lord, will feel the felt presence of your power, the felt majesty of your love, and the sweet, warm embrace, knowing, O oh Lord, that you are exactly who you say you are, Yahweh Elyon. And although life from time to time may seem confusing, it may seem as if there is no hope, this all ends, O oh Lord, with you. This all ends where there are no more tears, there are no more crying, there is no more sadness, and you have already prepared a seat for your children at your table. Lord, once again, we thank you for your word, and I ask you, O oh Lord, to shape us, Holy Spirit, and transform our hearts that we will not only have hope, but we will have the steadfast assurance, knowing, believing, trusting, and therefore living based upon who you are, Yahweh Elyon. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadafel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, Peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.